Hi, this is John Burlingame, host of Disney's Four Scores podcast. In this podcast series, we bring together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveal the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. It's such a pleasure to welcome an old friend and a new friend to the podcast to talk about their latest collaboration. Alan Silvestri is a two-time Oscar nominee, two-time Grammy winner, and two-time Emmy winner for music that ranges from Forrest Gump and Cast Away to Cosmos and the Polar Express. His latest honor is an Olivier for the London stage musical based on the classic movie Back to the Future. Glenn Ballard is also an Oscar nominee, a six-time Grammy winner, and a veteran songwriter and producer whose remarkable resume includes Alanis Morissette's album and musical Jagged Little Pill, songs for everyone from Michael Jackson to Katy Perry, the aforementioned Back to the Future musical, and so much more. Together, these powerhouse music makers have lent their talents to the new version of Pinocchio, now airing on Disney+. So welcome, Alan Silvestri and Glenn Ballard. We're Good great to see you, John. Grateful to be here. Please, thank you. So a question for both of you to start off, which is, what's your earliest memory of the original Pinocchio? Alan, you want to go that first? Sure. I, I actually remember seeing it as a young kid. And um, I remember not great detail. I remember how beautiful it looked. And I remembered it was a little scary. <laughs> and I think it might still be a little scary. <laughs> In parts. How about you, Glenn? Well, I'm certain I saw it on television. And I'm sorry I didn't get to see it in the theater in 1940, but I think I had a, a similar reaction. It was incredibly well realized as animation, and it, there were moments that were scary, but there was clearly a kind of tale of how, you know, how to be a better kid, you know, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, of course. So how did you two come to be asked to do the new Pinocchio movie? Maybe, Alan, that's for you. Sure. Uh Glenn and I have worked together now. It's it's over 20 years, I think, Glenn. And we've worked a number of times with Robert Zemeckis. And when this all began to happen and to form, um, it was kind of like getting the old team back together. And it was just a natural for us to come back in and try to sort out the problems that were about to unfold as we worked through Pinocchio. So, Glenn, what's your memory of, I'm presuming, Alan called and said, you'll never believe what we're doing next. <laughs> well, anytime I get a call from either Alan or Robert Zemeckis about doing something, of course, it's like Christmas morning for me. So, I mean, I think I was living in Paris at the time, and Robert Zemeckis sent us his first draft, sent it to me and Alan, of what he thought Pinocchio could be. And it was a, an extraordinary vision that, of course, has been developed. Chris Weitz came in and helped to create this incredible libretto for this story. And so, of course, it was inspiring from the downbeat for us. And 
before we get into the specifics of Pinocchio, it's very interesting to me that you two guys, Alan and, and Glenn, have worked together, I think, did you say almost 20 years, Alan? I think it's maybe more than that. I'm, I don't know exactly. What is it about you two that seems to have worked so well? I think very often composers and lyricists, you know, choose different partners for different projects. But you guys have done a lot together over this last two decades. Well, first of all, it starts for me as a songwriter observing the extraordinary relationship between Alan Silvestri and Robert Zemeckis. They've done so many movies together, and it's kind of like some kind of quantum entanglement. The way they build scenes and arrive at the right tone, it's, I've witnessed that magic, and I've been privileged to be called in to write songs with Alan for, for Robert's movies, and it's always like, for me, it's like the inspiration is already there, and I just try to bring in my A++ game because I'm dealing with great geniuses. So what I've learned from observing Alan Silvestri and Robert Zemeckis is that although Robert is a, a magician visually, every single shot has a narrative reason. He doesn't do anything randomly. And so he is a master storyteller and Alan is, is a great maestro, but he's also always serving the story. And so I've just learned so much from being a songwriter, being around these people, you know, lucky boy. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the songs. It's interesting to me that four of the songs are yours in the new Pinocchio, but actually three have been retained from the original 1940 animated film. Um, can you talk about why it was important to retain songs from the original movie. Oh, sure. Um, you know, it's structurally, the new Pinocchio is very uh, much related to the original Pinocchio. And the idea was not to go off on some completely um, reimagined, if you will, uh, version and there was something about these classic original songs that were kind of like touchstones. Of course, When You Wish Upon a Star is one of the most iconic songs ever heard, ever written. Uh, doesn't hurt to have one of those in your movie. <laughs> and the others, um, they're just these classic Disney, Pinocchio, also iconic songs. So it was great to have these touchstones of familiarity and then know that we would have the freedom in between to to go down different roads, different means of expression musically. So let's stick for a second, if we can, with When You Wish Upon a Star. In the original, it was sung by Jiminy Cricket, but here it's sung by the Blue Fairy. I'm sort of curious about why that switch and why it works uh, in a new way? Well, I, I think it starts with the way Robert Zemeckis and Chris Weitz wrote that scene. They, I think they wanted to give a lot more prominence to this in incredibly glorious song. And while Jiminy Cricket is fine singing it, it's much more glorious when the Blue Fairy sings it, especially when it's Cynthia Erivo.
I guess it's important perhaps to remind our listeners that because these are sung on camera, we watch people sing them. They obviously had to be arranged and recorded before the shooting. And I'm wondering if perhaps, Alan, you can talk about working with Cynthia or perhaps, Glenn, you were both working with Cynthia. Well, we had to do it all remotely because of the circumstances of the last few years. But I think she was at Abbey Road Studios and at one point some remote location. And she just came in and just burned the house down. We didn't have to do anything, you know, because when you work with singers like that, they don't really need a lot of help from us. And of course, she was just incredibly gracious in a dream to work with, but it was all remotely. We never got to be in the room with her, but someday. <laughs> right. Alan? Yeah, she was an absolute delight. And Glenn has said a number of times, it was probably the easiest day <laughs> in the entire film for us because we just got to be fanboys. And, and as you said, this all had to be done before the shooting. And so... Even though Bob Zemeckis had a very good idea of what would happen on the day, it wasn't on the day. And so we were exploring a couple of different ways the song could be sung. She was just amazing. She would try, oh, what if we do one like this? And then just one take, fantastic. And then what if I did one a little easier and this and this? And, and so she gave Bob a really lovely range of possibilities. So when that day did arrive, they would have real choices, which of course would affect the performance of the scene. As, as Glenn said earlier, you know, Bob doesn't do anything that isn't narratively driven in the film. It was one of the brilliant things about now having When You Wish Upon a Star as part of the narrative and not just a song we're listening to. So talk about the other two songs retained from the 1940 version, High Diddle Dee Dee and Actor's Life for Me, which, by the way, I've been humming all day long, um, and I've got no strings. Um, it's interesting that those two fit n quite neatly into the new version of the film. Uh, is, there, is there a reason that it was important to retain those? Well, High Diddle Dee Dee is very much the way it was done in the original film. And the, the narrative situation is fantastic um, and very much like the original film. Got No Strings is where Robert Zemeckis's brilliance kind of comes in. It wasn't quite done like that in the original <laughs> film, and it had quite a few technical challenges, actually. So we know the original song, and we know kind of the setup, but what, what Bob Zemeckis did with it and the way he built it was really fantastic. It's very recognizable, but lots of license taken uh, with how that was executed. So was that a challenge for you then as the arranger of the material? Well, it was in a sense. And Bob has certain kinds of motifs, I, I would call them. Things that attract him and things that he likes to explore. For instance, when we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we had this amazing opportunity with the dueling pianos. And I don't know if you recall that, John, but Bob has this 
motif about starting something in the real world and having it become faster and faster and faster and faster until it, it is no longer physically possible in the real world. And he would refer to that as tune speed. <laughs> so we start very in, in very much the same way. We start Got No Strings in the real world. I mean, real with, you know, talking puppets and, and all. But the way that tempo ramps up, um, that all had to be prepared, mocked up, uh, so that um, animation could be um, commenced. And all of this had to happen simultaneously. And then we have real orchestra there, and we have all kinds of technology going to allow us to, to realize that scene. It was uh, one of the more challenging pieces of music in the movie. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your new songs, beginning with one sung by Tom Hanks as Geppetto, When He Was Here With Me. It seems to illuminate some of the backstory about Geppetto. And I, it's one of the most fascinating moments of the new Pinocchio for me. Can you talk about um, how that song came about and what it needed to accomplish, Glenn? Well, we we go back to the script that we were given. And Mr. Zemeckis wanted to certainly give the audience the sense of, of, of the emotional place that Geppetto is in. I mean, we sort of see him in a two-dimensional way in, in the 1940 movie. But Robert always wanted to deepen that emotion. So the first thing was to understand kind of what his grief is. He's kind of a lonely man. And so it is a backstory. It, there's a picture of ostensibly his son on the, on the mantle. And so he's, he's just missing someone very important in his life. And it also implies that his wife is also gone. So he's a, a lonely clockmaker and he's missing everyone and there wasn't a song like that in the original so it, it right away bob said we've sort of got to up the emotion for why why he's this way and of course tom hanks doing it with alan score underneath it, it, it he he acts and sings it in a way that it's just you know very few people can do it that beautifully i, I just thought it was a very moving moment in the film when we first started reading the script, we both thought this was one of the most brilliant, breathtaking bits of newness in this version of Pinocchio. I think that Mr. Zemeckis is, is very interested in the idea that an artist can maybe repair their past, maybe change the future through their art. And so here's Geppetto, who has lost the most dear thing imaginable, and there he is now as an artist trying as best he can to bring this back to life. And it changed, I think, the tone of the entire film going forward and brought a layer of emotion that I thought was a, a wonderful addition to the Pinocchio story. And talk a little bit about how Tom Hanks handled your song. It sort of begins as him talking, but of course it's in rhyme. And I realized, you know, a line or two into it that we were actually hearing your song. Glenn, you want to talk about that? Well, he's one of the greatest actors of all time. And the way he approaches the songs we've done with him, including Polar Express, he does it in the most natural way possible. He understands 
the narrative needs from the song. He understands the character reveal that's going on, and then he does it his way. And again, doesn't need much coaching because he's a very musical actor. And so the blend between him talking and singing, he just does it flawlessly and probably as well as anybody who's ever done it. It's just a wonderful moment in the movie. And I was reminded, of course, after I've experienced Pinocchio, that you guys had sort of done this before on Polar Express because he sang at least a couple of your songs in that, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect word Glenn used. It's always natural. He finds the right tone so that you don't feel like, oh, a movie just stopped now and we're watching somebody sing a song. (laughs) You don't feel that, and that would have been terrible. So he found a brilliant way to keep the narrative alive, but give a little sense of, a musical moment and a performance moment. And then you gave him another song, Pinocchio, Pinocchio, which is kind of a, a dancing moment in, in Geppetto's workshop. Um, and I, as I recall, that's kind of unexpected. I don't recall that scene in the original movie, actually. Thank Mr. Zemeckis and Mr. White for creating that moment. Bob said, this is like the happiest moment since all the bad old days. This is like, of course, we should have a celebration. And that was an easy one for us to do because we were all sort of like happy we were getting another song with Tom Hanks. (laughs) (laughs) Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Glenn Ballard and Alan Silvestri's songs and score for Pinocchio. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. One of the new characters is the puppeteer Fabiana who sings another of your songs, I Will Always Dance. And it's quite touching, given her disability. Can you talk a little bit about that song, what it needed to accomplish, and maybe about the actress who who sings it? Well, first of all, uh, congratulations to Cayenne Lamaya, her first Disney role. And she was so wonderful and sensitive in the role. And, I mean, we again, this was a, a moment that, that Bob and Chris wanted to have where uh, Fabiana is handicapped, but her puppet, Sabina, is sort of her alter ego. And in fact, the way Bob builds the scene is that Pinocchio kind of has a crush on her because she's the only other wooden person that he knows. So it's Fabiana saying, even though I'm crippled right now, I'll always dance in my mind. So for us, it was a great, delicious moment It was such a quiet, introspective, at least in the beginning, moment in the film. And, of course, um, as, as she sees that she's being watched by Pinocchio, she goes into full tilt show business with this incredible samba. And, you know, once in, you know, a while, I sit back and marvel at what Robert Zemeckis has allowed us to do over all these years. (laughs) You just sit there and watch the movie and go, oh, I can't believe he let us do this. And it's in the film. It's It's a miracle. 
There's one other new song done by Luke Evans as the coachman. And, and it's great because, I don't know, do, do you have to have a villain song? It's nice to have a villain song. If Luke Evans is in the show, you got to give him a song. Come on. <laughs> because he's a consummate performer for stage, movies, television. And so, yeah, we, we gave him a song. And we were, again, as Alan said, we're grateful that we got it in there. He's a deliciously evil villain, you know, and there are elements in the original film and in this film that are slightly scary. It's not Grimm's fairy tales, but there's just a couple of moments where clearly there's a cautionary tale involved and there's a morality tale involved about, like, being truthful and, and not worrying about being famous. But all in all, I think that uh, it comes off as a more entertaining and, and warmer kind of version of the original. Yeah, and one of the things I love is how I don't think it's fair to say it's updated, but it's somehow more relevant to today's viewers. This whole issue of the, of the you know the celebrity and fame, which so many people are now obsessed with, it just seems incredibly relevant. It's interesting how that that happens, um, especially when you see structurally how close we are to the original. Uh, film. But tonally, this is very, very different. And I think what we found is the sensibility, for instance, of where you put songs, how you introduce them, where score goes and where it doesn't go, what score does and what it doesn't do in a movie today is very different than all of those questions and answers from 1940. So, you know, there's just a, a general change that will naturally have this version of the film or the story have more of a sense of current sensibility in time. Yeah, to follow on that, let's talk a little bit about the score. Since you had to tackle the songs first, early on, having written that material, did that form the foundation for the dramatic score as well? Or is the score itself its own thing? Well, you always, uh, you, I always, and certainly working with Glenn, we always look at the songs as part of the resources we now have as we look at the scoring side. All of this material must be on the table all the time because these are resources. They are on the table and there are opportunities to reference Geppetto in the workshop later in the film. And those things, I think, help the score have kind of an ongoing relevance and resonance, if you will. I wondered if some of the emotional and, and action moments, like Monstro, for example, may have their own themes, perhaps uh, new material. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We, you know try to look at it as what does the film need moment by moment. You have to walk through the film step by step and try to give it what it's asking for. The film was shot in England, I believe. And so were either of you or both of you present during filming at all? No. Oh, how sad. Would have been fun to be on the set. Uh, there was some very severe COVID protocols during the time. Otherwise, we would have been on the set. I mean, not only that, we've we've had to 
moved pieces of the orchestra in to Abbey Road, like a section at a time, and then put them together after. We couldn't even have a full orchestra in there at the same time. So it's kind of a minor miracle that we even got this movie made under these circumstances. And Mitch Lieb um, was... Uh, at Disney for the beginning of the project, and he connected us with a gentleman named Matt Sullivan. And Matt made the trip to London, and he was the musical presence, if you will, for all of the shooting and weathering hurricane winds (laughs) and all the rest of it. So it kind of worked out that we could spread ourselves thick (laughs) <laughs> and get and get through the filming of uh, the movie. Were any of the songs sung live on the set? I don't believe so. I think they we probably recorded it. Uh, we might have even made a few composite things, but most of it's pre-recorded. Although we're always rec- going to get every performance on set, but sometimes the acoustics aren't ideal but there's always at least a guide track for them to perform to. Yeah, we'd have to also, I think, check the ship's log on Tom's performance in when he was here with me. He may have just performed that, and then we had to retrofit <laughs> yeah. um, around his performance because I remember all these cutaways to Jiminy coming in and moving around mysteriously. Obviously, none of that was there when Tom performed. And uh, I'm not completely sure how they accomplished that, but he may have just started going. (laughs) Speaking of Jiminy Cricket, was there ever any thought of writing a song for Jiminy Cricket? Or maybe you did and it didn't wind up in the final cut. Yes, there was a thought. There was more than a thought. (laughs) But it did not make the final cut. Oh, too bad. How interesting. That was Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? Yes. Yes, yes. And and we adored this piece of music, and Glenn performed it magnificently. Um, But, you know, sometimes it works out that way. I mean, you've got to always keep the bigger picture in view. Well, certainly Robert Zemeckis does. That is probably the very definition of his job. Um, But it was lots of fun. And we'll see. It's a long life, John. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that the score was recorded at Abbey Road in London with our friend Mark Graham conducting. Alan, were you able to be there during the recording of the score? I was not. I was in um, Carmel, California. It was maybe a week prior to the sessions that the union was even allowed to gather at Abbey Road. And we had two studios at Abbey Road going simultaneously. And we had strings in one, I believe woodwinds in the other. And then the next day we had all of the brass and horns in one studio and percussion in the other, and we're having to work like this. This wasn't quite as crazy. Um, We wound up using a smaller ensemble so we could mostly get folks into the big room. But again, a technical challenge. And so were you monitoring the live recording back in your studio in Carmel? Absolutely, and Glenn was in his studio in LA, and 
We had two feeds. We had a video feed, so we had a beautiful projection of the film. And then we had the equivalent of our Zoom situation. So it was actually pretty amazing how quickly we were able to work. And we had a lot of 5 a.m. sessions from L.A., believe me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it was a happy 5 a.m. to get up and have Abbey Road there on the screen. Oh, are you kidding? It's fantastic. Alan, you've been doing Zemeckis projects since 1984. I've counted 19 films and at least two more TV projects through all that time. What is it about that relationship? What keeps the two of you working together? Bob was a creative person who, when he found a relationship, he he had a kind of trust um, and and just a, a kind of respect for a collaborator. He wasn't kind of fickle about his next movie or this or that. It was like, oh no, Al is my, my music person. So, you know, he would say things like, Al, um, I'm doing this movie, What Lies Beneath? We get to do our Hitchcock movie. Or he'd say, Al, we're going to do Back to the Future 3. We get to do our Western movie. <laughs> so with Glenn and I, um, I learned that from Bob. Glenn is my writing partner. So it's like, I'm doing a movie. I'm going to do it with the great Glenn Ballard. It's, it's whatever it is. So we get to do our animated Pinocchio movie, or we get to do Polar Express, or we, whatever we get to do. So, so I think that is why this has worked for all of us. Um, we see each other as fellow artists and collaborators. And there's something about having long-term relationships that is just amazing. What's the process like for you two guys when you're writing songs? I'm sure you always get the question, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? But are you in the same room when you're writing? Um, does Alan come up with a tune first? How does it work? Unfortunately, we're not in the same room, but we are, we're in the same Zoom. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so we've actually been doing that for years, but we've been able to collaborate that way uh, forever. Alan is an incredible lyricist. He's, again, he's a storyteller, and we usually start with a concept. If there's going to be a song in anything, it, it's such a deep reveal of, of a backstory, of an emotional place. And so once we understand either the character or the situation, then... Then we start trying to make a song out of it, you know, but it usually starts conceptually. I treasure the day that I first met Glenn Ballard because we were about to embark on Polar Express and there were going to be quite a few songs. It was a very important project. And I had always basically worked alone um, as a composer. And I had known about Glenn from Mike... Gorfain and Sam Schwartz for years, you know, the great Glenn Ballard. So I went to meet Glenn and I'm intimidated and I'm really nervous <laughs> because I don't write with anyone. And so Glenn, of course, is, you know, aside from his great musical gift, narrative gift, producing gift, 
is like the ultimate people person. So <laughs> it's just been magnificent all these years. We have no boundaries, no limits to how we approach it. It's purely creative and it's whatever the project and the song need. It's fun to talk about Back to the Future, the musical, which won an Olivier for as best new musical in London's West End. You know, Back to the Future has over the years become genuinely a classic. And to take it and translate it into a stage musical, which then becomes successful on its own, it's kind of a, a thrill to find out. Well, it's, it's probably at the top of the most gratifying things I've ever been able to be involved with because I got to collaborate with so many great people over such a long period of time. And after about 425 performances at the Adelphi Theater in London, I think we know that we have something special. Yeah, it's been amazing. And it couldn't have happened without the Bobs. And the Bobs, of course, refer to Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis in this case. Yes, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis. Yeah. They just allowed us to, you know, pursue our wildest dreams. It has this, you know, lovely kind of free, expressive arc to it, but it's all pure back to the future. And we have Marty and Doc and Jennifer you know, all singing, all dancing. Well, it's great to talk with you both, and it's great that you have uh, given us a few minutes to talk about Pinocchio today. I'm so grateful to the both of you. Thank you, Alan Silvestri and Glenn Ballard. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Check out Pinocchio on Disney Plus and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you can rate it, because that really helps others find the series. Music